Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise be to God. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days. And we are speaking the truth, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth, speaking the truth all the way around of God's word in our society. That's what we need more people to do, stand up and speak the truth. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time here and you don't know how things work, I'm going to pray. We're going to read the section of scripture we're in. You're going to get the title and then we're going to hear the truth of God's word. So I hope you didn't come here to be entertained or, or to have just to have your coffee and eat your donut or whatever. I hope you came here to learn God's word so that you could either follow him more or follow him more closely or come to know him. I don't know where you're at with him. But anyway, if you join me in a word of prayer, please, let's ask the Lord to bless our message today and our hearts so that we can receive it and that we receive it especially especially on good soil something we know from the sower and the seed we can not have necessarily the good soil when hearing the things of God so Lord we do thank you for this new day Lord God thank you for bringing us here thank you for your love for us thank you for all your grace and your mercy Lord God as you have given all that are alive another day Lord to live and to either choose you or continue to walk with you or or follow you more, or, or receive callings that you have for us, Lord. Thank you so much for letting us be alive today and bringing us here. We, we, we thank you, Lord God, for all the good things and all the wonderful things that you give to us every single day, Lord. As our very life and our breath and our heartbeats, Lord, are all from you. And Lord, all the food that we get to eat, Lord, and the air that we get to breathe, Lord, and the families that we get to have, or the church families that we get to have, Lord God, thank you for all of these wonderful gifts. We do ask today, Lord God, that you would help us to understand your word. Help me to teach it. Help me to bring it forth. Help the people that are listening, and even me, even learn lots of things today from your word. And I pray, Lord God, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word only, but that we be hearers and doers. I pray we'd receive your word on a good soil of our heart, Lord God. Please, Help us to receive this word on, our, on, on a good soil in our hearts. We know that's not always the case, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you and love you and praise you and ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Today we're going to be in a brand new chapter, Acts chapter 24. We're going to be in verses 1 through 23. I know that's a lot, but we're going to get through them in a timely manner. Again, Acts 24, verses 1 through 23. I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles up if you want to read along. I'm about to read them, or you can listen along, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, some people aren't good readers. Some people don't even have Bibles, I understand. So the title of our sermon today is Beware the Flatterer. Beware the Flatterer. Acts 24, 1 through 23, our new chapter says this. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Verse 2. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be too tedious to you any farther, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among the, all the Jews throughout the world as a, and, and a ringleader of a sect of Nazareans. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his, his, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, or I would say agreed, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Verse 15. 
And I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God. Amen. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Speaking in the past, verse 21. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Last couple verses. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate way of the knowledge, he adjourned the proceeding and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty, and told him not to forgive or not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him for or visit him. Last week we learned of some of forty plus Jewish uh, I called them nuts, and I'll call them nuts again today, that schemed a plan to kill Paul. It was a brilliant plan from a human perspective. I'd even say it was pretty much foolproof. Sadly, though, for the 40-plus Jews who had taken vows to not eat nor drink until they had killed Paul, all their, although their plan was golden from a human perspective, they didn't plan on the godly perspective. Jesus Christ had different plans. He said, Paul's going to Rome, and that's that. And when Jesus Christ, or God Almighty, think or say something will happen, then it's not 100%, not 1,000%, not a million percent. It's infinity percent going to happen. And that's just the way things are with God. That means that God foils, as we know, last week, he foils the plans of the 40-plus Jews. But does that mean that the Jewish leadership stops trying to take Paul out, stops trying to get him killed? Heavens no, I wish it did. Read verse 1 again. Now, after five, day, five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders. That's important. It's going to be important for later. With the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. It does not say there that they each gave evidence against Paul. It means these as a group, in a sense, gave evidence against Paul. Look at who's there. We know first there, there's Ananias, the high priest. We know all know how much he loved Paul, that Paul, for a, a slip of the tongue, because he just didn't know who was there, he got a strike on the mouth. He commanded somebody to strike him on the mouth, Acts 23.2. Next, we have the elders of Israel. These guys were at the first council, at the first trial with Paul. Paul tells us this in verse 20 of today's message. I'll point that out when we get there. And the elders would have been, if, if you know your Old Testament, New Testament really doesn't talk about it very much, but the elders were the oldest and wisest people of all whom the Bible calls the children of Israel, or that would be what we know today as the Jewish people. And lastly, we have there a real interesting fella, kind of the the fellow that we're going to kind of zero in on, the fellow that where we got the title from. Lastly, we have a name, fellow by the name of Tertullus. We don't read of him, interestingly enough, anywhere before this section. Anywhere. And he claims, as we go through the text, as we're going to go through them again, that he was there in the temple when they attacked Paul because Paul was blaspheming God in the temple, and he claims that they did But yet we don't read about him anywhere um, anywhere before this section. So I, I'm led to believe, really, I'm of the opinion that he really didn't know or have anything to do with Paul except that what he had been told by the Jewish religious leadership. And Luke finds it necessary important to tell us that he was an orator. What does that speak to? That speaks volumes because what was an orator? What is an orator modern day? That would be a professional speaker. That's what he was paid to do. He was a, he was a, a he, he got in front of audiences and he, he gave speeches and he, he might have been in plays. He might have been the narrator in place. He was a professional speaker. Here's the first question I have for us today. Why would the Jews have found it necessary to bring a new guy who was a professional speaker who didn't know any of the things of Paul and what happened with him firsthand? Well, again, verse 1 told us that they all were together and they, they 
gave evidence against uh, to the governor against Paul. Evidence, of course, that was supposed to prove that Paul was guilty, of course. And here's my kind of answer. Why did they bring him along? Well, think about it. Isn't delivery everything? When you're speaking to somebody, isn't the way you deliver what you want to say really everything? Isn't that going to get the person's attention? Isn't that going to, you know, get up, you know, let them hear what you want to say clearly? Uh, delivery is everything, especially here, even the delivery of, let's say you want to give evidence to someone that you want to be found guilty, someone that you want dead. And verse one just told us that those at this trial gave Felix evidence against Paul again, all at once. I don't think that all of them individually gave evidence against Paul. They each were to give evidence against Paul. I think that Tertullus, our orator, was like the front man, the one that was going to give the evidence for the group of Jews, kind of all. But we'll see this later on. I want to show you this later on. So uh, I don't want to, I'm getting ahead of myself. But look at the first part of verse 2 uh, as this is the first one to talk. Verse 2, because nobody else was called upon. And then all of a sudden, here we go, verse 2. And when he, which is Tertullus, was called upon, that means that. They were each speaking as Felix gave them opportunity, but nobody was recorded before him that spoke. Great plan, everything in order, right? That's what the Bible says that everything should be done in, decently in order. So I love the way this guy was working. So I don't know about what you see, but what I see so far, I see a dirty plan. I see a dirty plan by the Jews to bring along this professional speaker that seemingly didn't have any dealings or any knowledge firsthand of Paul and his situations before now. I see all these Jews at this trial standing there with the high priest and Tertullus as if they were waiting to be called upon. But I see this professional speaker right up there in front of the group, kind of standing next to the high priest, the one in whom they all wanted to speak. And I believe that we see that verse 9. If you skip down to verse 9, we'll read it again. But verse 9, Scripture tells us, again, nobody spoke before Tertullus. And look what happens after Tertullus speaks in verse 9. And the Jews also assented, which means agreed, maintaining that all the things which he had just said were true. Then the Bible tells us, verse 10, if you want to scroll your eyes to verse 10, that basically anyone could have spoken, but none of the other Jews, including even the high priest, said even one thing against Paul after Tertullus. And even if they had something that they had said against Paul before Tertullus or even after, none of their statements made it into Luke's recording here, which makes it doubtful to me that anyone else spoke anything. Then right after, literally verse 10, right after Tertullus speaks, Felix gives Paul the floor to speak. So nobody speaks before him. Nobody speaks after him. He was, again, I believe, the front man, the man who was going to give the most eloquent presentation of how Paul was such an evil man before this governor, Felix. Now, think about it. He wouldn't have been nervous. He wouldn't have been anxious. He, he was a professional speaker. He was the best one to give a presentation against Paul. But unfortunately, again, from for their to make their case perspective, and I'll see, I'll show you how they kind of how they kind of they kind of flounder. They don't they don't do well in their performance or in their in, in his speech against Paul. And I'll show you later. But he doesn't do well, and that's because I believe he didn't have that firsthand knowledge. Of, of Paul. Now, that is what I surmised kind of from this whole scene, making up this whole scene. You can make up your mind as we go through the scripture, but just kind of humor me as we go along and just see what I'm saying. Just see the things that I wish I said. You again, make up your own mind. But getting back to verse two, Tortillus was called upon to speak and he says this. Keep reading verse two and go through verse nine. We're going to kind of get a whole big section and I'm just going to comment different places, different things. Tertullus began his accusation saying, notice it says that he began his accusation saying, that's really interesting because look at what he says Does it, in his first couple few lines here. He doesn't really give any accusations at all. He says, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace. That's the first thing he says. That has nothing to do with Paul. 
and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. Oh, Felix, you're so wonderful. Wow, you're such a great leader. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Wow, that was really pretty, wasn't it? That was really eloquent. That was really professional. You know what else it was, though? You know what else it was? It was also a bunch of flattery. It was also a bunch of nonsense, considering why he was there, right? He was there, remember, to give evidence against Paul. Uh, and uh, Evidence, again, evidence to show Paul was guilty of some crime, even though we know Paul was innocent, he didn't do anything wrong. He was there to give evidence against Paul for some wrongdoing. Evidence that wasn't just supposed to get Paul sent to prison. They wanted Paul to be put to death. That's what they wanted. That's, that's what they tried to do a, a couple few different times up to this point now. He gave them a bunch of flattery crap. That's what he gave them. Someone only does something like what he does here if they're trying to flatter the judge so that they can get him on their side, right? Oh, oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're such a wonderful this. And oh, you do this in such a great way. Why? Because they're hoping that their flattery works on the heart and on the conscience of the person that they're talking in front of so that they go, oh man, this guy really thinks all that good stuff about me? Oh, he's got to have something good to say, right? That's why the title, it's where the title of our sermon comes from. Did you know the Bible says, beware of flatterers? And this guy was a flatterer. Proverbs 7 and 21, Solomon was speaking about how an adulterous woman he saw through the lattice work caught up a young man and that was not her husband and how she flattered him to come and make love to her because her husband was not at home. Beware the flatterer. Psalm 55, David is speaking about a friend of his that has betrayed him and, and says this of how he betrayed him. Listen to how David uses the words and how this, how it's another way to look at flattery. Psalm 55 verses 20 and 21. He has put forth his hand against those who are at peace with him. That's what he did. He, he, he kind of backstabbed. That's what his friend had done, which is, you know, you don't expect a friend to backstab you. He has broken his covenant, which means he's broken his deal. Listen, though, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You see, the words in verse 21, speaking of the betrayer's words, saying that they were smoother than butter or softer than oil, also references flattery. Flattery and such is that you know what you're there to do, you're there to do wrong. But you don't want to let anybody know you're there to do wrong. So it's like, oh, and you know, kind of, as you have the knife kind of on your back, like you pretend you're scratching your back, oh man, oh David, can I have your hand and, and, and kiss it because you're such a wonderful leader. And then as he's doing it, he's, he's sticking the knife up your gut. Beware of the flatterer. Flatterers are dangerous. Ever heard the words, hey, butter them up and we'll get our way? A lot of kids, I know myself, I used to flatter when I was a kid. Oh, mom, oh, you're such a wonderful lady. Oh, dad, you're such a wonderful guy. I, I, in fact, it's funny because I wasn't doing this the other day, but I called up my home and I was talking to my wife and said, you know, I just, I love you, honey. You're, such, you're an awesome wife. You're, you're such a great woman. And the words out of her mouth were, okay, what do you want? Because she thought I was trying to butter her up, flatter her to get something that I wanted. Well, I wasn't. I was just truthfully telling her that I loved her. And she was a great wife. And but, but so many times in our society, that's why people come to us. And that's why they say nice things to us is because they're trying to flatter us. They're trying to butter us up so that they can get what they want. Well, here we see Tertullus, this orator, this flatterer. He's doing the same thing here with Felix. So I see this order as nothing more than an evil, dangerous flatterer who had come to speak flattering, smooth, and soft words to Felix to get him to favor the Jews in their case against Paul and find him guilty. Look at what this evil flatterer with his smooth words says next. He, he, does, he doesn't keep it up the whole time, but he just doesn't stop at first. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, not to be 
too tedious to you any farther. So in other words, uh, we don't want to hold you up any more than you already have to be inconvenienced for this trial, Felix. Oh man, uh, basically he was trying to put it into Felix's mind that this trial, all Paul's fault. You know, he's, he's the reason why we're here, you know. But, but oh, you're such a great man, right? But he was, but he was wasting his time. That was a, a subtle dig against Paul there. And he goes on, I beg you to hear. I beg you to hear? That's what they were there to do to hear. Felix was there to hear. He begs you to hear by your courtesy. Flattery, you're such a wonderful man. You're so nice. By your courtesy, you're so wonderful to be able to even have us here at this trial. Man, you are, man, you are like the greatest ruler ever. I mean, that's really what he's doing. And he says a few words from us. Flattery, 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 flattery. Keep going. First, uh, verse 5 and first part of verse 6. He doesn't continue, but he finally gets to why they're there. After now, he's got, he thinks he's got Felix's heart all buttered up and all greased up, and he's told him all these nice things. Verse 5, first part of verse, verse 6. For we have found this man a plague. Ouch, that's bad. A plague, that's not very good. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. He even tried to profane the temple. Again, he finally stops his flattery, figuring he's got Felix all buttered up, and he finally gets to the reason why they're there, how evil Paul really is. And boy, oh boy, did he ever speak about how evil Paul was. Did you see all those bad things he said against him? Really, really bad stuff, right? But all those bad things, we're going to look at them one more time. Do you know what they really were? Well, I'm going to give you the opportunity to figure out if you can figure out what they were. And I'm going to read them over again and I'm going to kind of, I'm going to play them up, right? Did you see it? Look at verse 5 again and that first part of verse 6. For we have found this man a plague. You know, that, look at that picture you're getting. What is a plague? You know, think of the, the black plague and the, all these other plagues that the world's had throughout. The, it's nasty, like, like, like vermin, like, you know, the rats and have been brought in plague, right? And then they go on, he goes on, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Well, that's a big one, isn't it? That's a big bad one, isn't it? A creator of dissension. That means... He said Paul was going around all over the known world, which he would travel, and he was doing things just to incite the Jews to anger, probably giving them a prelude of what their actions were, of what, of what Paul did in verses 6 through 9, but we'll get that in a second. And then he goes on, lastly, or a couple last things, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans, he even tried to profane the temple. Those are really bad things. For a Jew to go into their temple, to his, he's Jewish, and, and it was a Jewish temple. For a Jew to go into a Jewish temple and then profane it, meaning profane the God the, of that temple, that was a bad, bad, bad thing. But did you happen to notice he gave some really bad things against Paul, but you know what all those bad things really were? Can you guess? All those bad things were empty accusations. He didn't give Felix any proof of any, wrong de- of, any, of any wrongdoing. All he said was, listen to all these bad things that we've seen Paul do. Whoa, man, he's so bad, and oh, he's a plague, and oh, oh, the dissension that he sows. He didn't, he didn't say where, the whole world. Well, that's, that's nonsense. Nobody's sowing dissension throughout the whole world. Nobody's even strong enough to do something like that. Just nothing but nonsense. His claims had zero evidence of one thing that Paul had done wrong. All they did was attack him with empty, unsubstantiated claims. He goes on to say the way they, as I said earlier, I don't believe he was there at all, they, yeah, right, respond to how awful Paul is. Look at verses 6 through 9. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Remember, that was Acts 21, 30 and 31, when the Jews, who aren't even there, we'll see that later in this in Paul's defense, saw him in the temple and they thought, remember, he was with Gentiles and Gentiles were forbidden to go into the temple, which would have been a bad thing that Paul did. But remember, they were Jews that Paul was sanctified with, a couple guys that Paul was with, that they were Jews, right? 
And when Tertilla said that they wanted to judge him according to their law, that meant that they wanted to kill him. Then this great flatterer, deceiver with his smooth words, recounts Paul's glorious delivery. Again, that I don't believe he was there to see, but look at what happens here. He kind of, he kind of, beware the flatterer. They only want to tell you what they want to tell you to try to make their case. Verses 7 and 8. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. Well, that is what happened. I mean, those are, I should say, a couple of the things that happened. But you know what he did? He didn't recount all the different things that kind of went on. He, he skipped huge details because he probably didn't want it. He probably either didn't know them or didn't want him to know of them. And he was just simply trying to deceive Felix and get in the Jews' way to kill Paul. Uh, the Jews, they might not even either told him. like They would have said, hey, only say these things, you know, because we know these are the real bad things. Like they didn't, He didn't tell Felix of the time that Paul, st- they were trying to kill him. Him, and there was, and if he was really there, he would have known this. They were trying to kill him, you know, because he supposedly profaned the temple. Then, as the as as the Roman as the Romans are dragging him off or, or above their heads, so that the crowd won't tear him to pieces and kill him, Paul stops him and says, "Hey, can I talk to them? Can, can you can you stop? I love them, basically. Can I talk to them?" And I'm sure the Romans were going, "These guys were trying to kill you. What do you mean you want to stop and talk to them?" But no, no, Paul did. Paul wanted to stop. And talk to them. He, he, didn't, he leaves that out. Then, of course, the, they, they try to rip him apart again after he gives his, his testimony, right? Hey, this is what God did to me. This is what happened. And I'm road to Damascus. And then I tried to love Jews and tell Jews. But the Jews rejected me. So I went to the Gentiles. Oh, and they wanted to kill him again, right? Then the commander gets him away and takes him safe. Then they have a joke trial. Remember where the, where the Roman commander, Elysius, tried to have, and, and then it started a disaster, remember, when the, when, when the high priest commanded Paul be struck on the mouth, and of course the, 40, the, the plot by the 40-plus Jews to kill Paul. Why remember, Lysias put that in the letter, right? So Felix knew, he probably, this, this, uh, this order probably didn't know that. But here we have all these details that were left out because our flatterer, I believe, either knew or didn't want him to know, didn't want Lysias to know all these things because that might have made a case for Paul. Oh, he, you mean he tried to talk to you even though you were trying to kill him? Well, that doesn't seem like somebody that's guilty. Well, he had another trial. There was another. How come you didn't tell me anything about that other trial? Oh, there were all, and there were 40 of you guys that were trying to kill him and what a scheme? Hmm. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, here, uh, the flatters didn't, he didn't want him to know that. He didn't want him to know, he didn't want Felix to know that. That wouldn't make their case. So again, beware the flatterer. They only tell you the things that they want you to. To hear, so he's doing so so up till now, right? He's kind of you know flattered Felix, and he said some really good things, you know, and he's really lifted up Felix, and he said some really bad things about Paul, and gave some really bad accusations. Which sadly, here in America, that's all it usually takes to get somebody in the in the jail or to get somebody arrested is just to make some claims. And then you know, here in America, we just people just oh, he's guilty. That somebody made a claim, he's guilty with no proof. I will get to that later, but anyway. But then, up till now, even though he's done so-so, here, right where we're going to go here, looking at verses 8 and 9, the rest of verse 8 and 9, he actually makes a grand mistake. A mistake that I believe was brought about by Jesus Christ. Because, remember, Jesus Christ said, you're going to Rome. Nothing's going to happen to you until you go to Rome. You're going to testify me, testify of me in Rome, just like you did here in Jerusalem. Verses 8 and 9, the flatterer's mistake. Read it, start at the end there, or middle of verse 8 there. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain or figure out all these things of which we accuse him. So if you talk to him, he'll actually affirm to you the things we've said are actually true. Mistake! In verse 9, and the Jews again assented or agreed, maintaining that these things were so. Verse 8 he makes this mistake that I believe God made him make by his sovereignty. The flatterer actually encourages Felix to let Paul defend himself. That was a huge 
mistake, you see. Paul was a brilliant man of God. He was a great speaker. He knew his way around great flatterers. He knew his way around religious leaders. He knew his way around people that were trying to persecute him and kill him. He knew his way around the debate. He, he knew his way around people that were trying to attack him. People were doing it for years on him now, right? Paul may have been disabled with his eyesight. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, how he's kind of partially blind. But what he made up for in his poor eyesight, in his partial disability there, he made up in wit, in his heart, in his brain, as he was as sharp as a tack. And God knew that, of course. Look at verse 10, Paul's brilliant defense. Look at how Paul starts his defense. Notice what he doesn't do. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, And as much as, you, as, much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't flatter Felix. He just stepped right up and he says, Hey, Felix, basically, you know, good to see you. I know you've been a judge a long time, and I am so happy that I actually get a chance to speak for myself. So basically, he was kind of thanking Felix. Thank you, Felix, for you know letting knowing that there's two sides to every story, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak, but there's no flattery there. Paul didn't say anything great about Felix or build him up or butter him up with his smooth words. Paul wasn't a flatterer. He was just a speaker of truth and a speaker of love and, of course, the love of Jesus Christ. And you know what? One thing that always kills flattery and always kills lies, truth. Truth is the best defense against a lie, a flatterer, everything. Truth is always the best way. Look at how Paul defends himself because he exposes tertullus lies and accusations and gives actual evidence that he's innocent of their charges, not just, I'm innocent because I say. I hate that too. If you are guilty, then you're guilty. And if there's evidence against it, then there's evidence against it. But if you're innocent, not just to say, I'm innocent and that's it. That's, that's why. So verses 11 through 13, he goes on to say, Paul now, because you may ascertain, that means learn, so all he had to do was inquire, that there, it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Notice he gives Felix the time which can be traced for truth, right? Anybody could go back and go to Jerusalem and say, hey, so Paul said he was there 12 days and he came back to Jerusalem and those that knew Paul or those that were witnesses in the temple of him would have been, yeah, yeah, about 12 days ago, yeah, Paul came. So there he gives them the first thing there. He tells them the truth about the time which can be tracked and can be traced. Verse 12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Paul gives him the truth, and he even has proof of that. There were two men, remember, in the temple with him that day. Jews that he can prove were with him. They have an alibi. Other people saw them that they were with him, right? Other Jews in the temple that weren't part of the attackers would have said, Oh, yeah, hey, hey, so-and-so, hey, so-and-so, how you doing? And they would have known they were Jews. Plus, he, he could have gone to the apostles who would have said, Yeah, we told Paul it would be a good idea if he, if he and a couple Jews were purified. And then they went into the temple. He gave, Paul gave him everything that can be proved if Felix wanted to know. Next, he says something that's absolutely genius. He, he points out exactly what I've been pointing out, verse 13. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. For you see, Paul knew that the Jews' accusations could not be proven against them with real evidence. The Jews gave no time limit. They gave no places, specific places. They didn't even say what Paul did to offend or, or to bring blasphemy or, or in the temple. They said he profaned the temple, but he didn't even tell them how. So how could Felix, what, what is there, well, oh, you know this guy, Paul, oh, yeah, yeah, Paul, how did he profane the temple? And people would have gone, profane the temple? When did Paul ever profane the temple? I mean, all they had to do was send a couple investigators to Jerusalem, and they could have found everything that Paul said was true, and they would have found nothing that was true by what Tertullus, this flatterer, told Felix. And Paul also knew that without proof, his persecutors, or prosecutors, I should say, had no case. He, he also knew this, which this, uh, obviously this public professional speaker wasn't a lawyer, but he also knew, Paul knew, that the burden of proof 
lays upon someone that brings an accusation against someone else. It, like, for instance, if, if I claim so-and-so did this to me, well, then now it's up to me to prove that that actually happened. That, that's how the law works. Yes, you could make an accusation, and oh, now, now we got to have a trial. Now we got to have judges to see you know, who's telling the truth and what's going on. But then I have to bring forth evidence and proof that so-and-so, let's say, vandalized my car. Or Saul, somebody sexually assaulted me. Then I got to have somebody that's not on my side, that's a witness that says, yeah, they saw it. I have to have a camera maybe in our new age, day and age, right? I, have to, I can maybe pull camera footage because we're on camera almost everywhere we go that would show, hey, this person did so and so and such and such from me. And that's what I'd have to, that's what I have to bring. Someone who's accusing is the one that is the burden of proof lies upon to actually show the proof. And, and there is not even a semi-righteous law system anywhere in the world where an accuser gets to make accusations against someone without any proof that the accused actually did something wrong. In America, if you're familiar with the American ways here, that it reminds me of the Judge Kavanaugh trial. And, and it reminds me of these so-called women that are accusing Donald Trump of assaulting them. Of oh, this just accusations. There's no, nobody has any proof. Nobody has any camera footage. Nobody has any eyewitnesses. The, the lady or ladies that brought their, their arguments against the, the, the court for Judge Kavanaugh, the, the people she brought didn't even remember who she was. They didn't know what happened. There's no proof. It, basically, they said, these guys have done these wrongs. Find them guilty because we say. But again, no right, no, even a semi-righteous law system. I don't, I don't even mean that they got to be like a, like a God law system or, a, you know, I'm just saying a semi-righteous. Even people that have some morality uh, would never say, oh, oh, you brought an accusation. Oh, there's no proof. Oh, well, too bad. You said it happened. Therefore, ah, guilty. That's it. Send him to prison. That's just ridiculous. And, and this in America has to stop. We as people have to stop this blindness of saying, oh, somebody, a woman or whoever says something happened. If there is no evidence to this happening, we can't just claim people are guilty and then ruin people's lives because somebody made an accusation. This is ridiculous. It should never stand up in court. It should never prosecute somebody ever. Paul is intelligent and he even knows this is truth. And what did he do? He brought it to his defense. Hey, they can't prove one thing that they said against me. If you believe them, you're believing accusations only. They, they, they gave you nothing, no real evidence, no real substantial evidence to prove that I'm guilty. And if Paul knew it, it's, uh, we ought to see it. It's right there. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm, I'm done. I'm done for that part right there. Just that that really fires me up in our world today because that's what's happening in our America today. I don't know about other parts of the world, but, but getting back to Scripture, Paul wasn't only just trying to defend himself against their unsupported accusations. He actually had an ulterior agenda. Verses 14 through 16, I mean, I'll just kind of cap it once I read them. But I confess to you, Paul goes on to say, and it gets away from himself, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I, I have hope in God, which they themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. What did Paul just do there? Did you notice? <laughs> he did exactly what he taught the Ephesians to do in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. To that church, he wrote, he wrote this. He said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. His, his agenda here, his awesome agenda, was to also witness of the great God of heaven, Jesus Christ, and the hope that Paul put in him for salvation. And he also wanted to tell them, hey, there's a resurrection of the dead. Hey, for the evil and the good. And hey, I want, you know, I'm, I'm striving to attain the, the resurrection for the righteous. Come on, come with me. Hey, this is what I'm all about. I'm all about worshiping the God of heaven and earth. See, that's, that's what I am. That's who I am, 
right? Every Christian, in my opinion, in my, actually not my opinion, every Christian according to the Bible. Let me back up and say that because who cares about my opinion? But every Christian according to the Bible, true Christian, should be shining their light for Christ no matter what situation that they're put in. It would have been real easy here for Paul. He was under the gun. They were making accusations against him. You know, there were a lot of them. There was only one of him. There was one governor who really, he wasn't, uh, he, he wasn't, th this trial, eh, you know, I'm sure he had better things to do. So really, did he care if, he, if Paul was guilty or not guilty? No, he was just trying to, you know, check that off and get that, you know, get whatever needed to happen, happen, and he would get back to his lavish lifestyle or rulings on other things or, you know, sitting in his hot tub with his, with his girls around him, you know, whatever. He didn't want to, probably want to be there. And so Paul could have had every opportunity to just move on and continue to just defend himself, but instead he chose to not just defend himself, but he chose to witness to these guys, to tell them about Jesus Christ and tell them about salvation and tell them about, you know, the resurrection from the dead. And, and that's what he was all about, preaching Jesus Christ. I, I myself make sure that I make an opportunity with every single person practically that I come in contact with, whether it be at the grocery store or whether it be on the phone or whether it be on my school bus that I drive every day as I wear all witness attire, I witness for Christ with my with the clothes I wear, with the music I listen to, with Him in my speech. And then when God gives me an opportunity to talk to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, then most of the time, I'm, I'm, I am human, I do make mistakes, but most of the time I take that opportunity and I share Christ with them one-on-one -on -one and not just shine for Him to them. And this is what Paul did here, even though he had every excuse in the world not to do that. He could have just been looking out for himself, but instead he chose to witness for Christ in the midst of this, you know, could have been a really disastrous situation. Now, after he has his initial witness of Jesus Christ and the sect called the Way, which was Christianity, in with Felix and these Jews, he begins to tell Felix his side of the story. Remember I said earlier, there's always two sides to every story. Paul wants to tell his side of the story to defend himself and end the accusations of these lying Jews and this deceiving flatterer, and I think he does an amazing job to do that. Look at verses 17 through 21. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Again, things that Felix could ascertain. 18, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. He's talking about Acts 21, 26 through 29. Now, remember where he was with the two guys in the temple. Again, another fact that Felix could ascertain. Neither, he says, with a mob nor with a tumult. And everybody that was in that temple, including those two guys that were his witnesses, could have, ascertained, could have agreed to the fact that, no, Paul wasn't doing anything wrong. He had taken a vow, he was you know, getting purified, and the vow was over, and so on and so forth. Then he goes on, verse 19 and 20, he, he, he brings the heavy hitters to this trial. Look at what he says in verses 19 and 20. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. I'll, I'll talk about why they're important after I read them. Verse 20, or else let those who are here themselves... See, that, that's another reason I don't think anybody said anything. Paul's like, hey, let them talk. Hey, they were there. They, the people that are here right now, they were there. He said, it, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrong doing in me while I stood before the council. So Paul's talking about the other trial that he stood before. Paul says, again, some super amazing things in defense of himself here. Number one, he brings up the fact that those that initially attacked him in the temple in Acts 21 weren't there for this meeting. Now, wouldn't it been beneficial for the orator, the Jews, to have found the people that actually attacked him that were there firsthand to come and accuse Paul? Yeah, we saw him there. He was doing this. Yeah, we were all there. We and you know what? Yeah, and you know what? We wouldn't and shouldn't. Have, but you know, we took the law in our own hands, and then we tried to. We just attacked him right away. But none of them were. That's interesting. Why not bring along the people that could have proved your case? <laughs> Unless they wouldn't have proved this case. They would have proved they would have proved them wrong, and that they just wanted to kill him because they hated Paul. And number two, he brings up the fact that the elders that are there 
the ones that are at this trial, they were also there in the trial that Paul stood before with Lysias, the commander, Acts 23, verses 1 through 6. And Paul says, just a couple days ago. Well, it was important that Paul communicate this, these things to Felix because, number one, if Paul's words there weren't countered by the flatterer or any of the evil Jews that were there, that tells Felix that the order, flatterer or the Jews, they don't know one thing. They they, they're not being truthful about one thing that they're saying because really they don't have a case against Paul. And it turns out, as we're going to look, as I've already pointed out earlier, right after this orator is done, the Jews agree with him. Felix goes over to Paul. They never did say anything. And at the end, we're going to read it in a little bit, they never say anything either, ever. So that just tells Felix he's not guilty. Because they said, hey, if you got, you know, Paul will tell you the truth that all these things we're saying are true. Paul just said, hey, these people, they were there, they didn't say nothing there. So here, let them speak. And then they don't speak. That just shows, hey, we can't rebut what he's saying. Well, then, got nothing else to say. That's innocence for Paul, right? Number two, if the elders of the first trial with Lysias in Acts 23, which are in this trial didn't find him guilty in the first trial, then why would they find him guilty today? The only way they'd be there to say, oh, no, 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 he's guilty today is if somebody was bribing him. Somebody was, you know, hey, well, if you just say these things, you know, you'll have a better seat, you know, you'll do this and the other thing. And, and, and that's the only real reason, because if they didn't find him guilty the first trial, and they're there at this trial, and Paul's pointing them out to Felix. Hey, these guys of the council, hey, they were the elders of the last trial. They were there, they were at the council, they sat on the council, and they didn't find me guilty there. Well, why are they here now? Uh, Felix can ascertain these things. He could go to Lysias and say, hey, were these, were these elders there? Uh, Lysias would have said, well, of course, yeah. You know, the high priest bought this and, you know, and, they, and they were there, right? And the golden thing about Paul's info for Felix here, again, it can all be verified by Felix if he investigated it because Paul gave him specific details. Plus, if his accusers didn't rebut him in any way, which, again, I say they don't, they don't this proves that Felix... Uh, this proves to Felix that those that are accusing Paul are just lying. Uh, unlike, uh, the, <laughs> unlike the unsubstantiated claims and accusations by the flatterer and the lying Jews, of which nothing they say can be proved except his words, Paul gives the truth and gives things that can be traced and things that can be looked at and things that can be proved, literal things. So right now, they're sweating. Oh, man. Wow, he said those things? Oh, man. It's not looking too good for them. It's not looking too good for those that attacked him in the temple, that they weren't there to speak against Paul, who, who caught the flatter, that this would have caught the flatter in, out, in an outright lie. And, and those that were there, of the elders that were in the council, didn't find Paul guilty in the first trial. The flatterer and the Jews are sweating. Oh man, oh man, I didn't know he'd bring up the truth. <gasps> We just thought, you know, I just thought he was going to just preach Jesus. And if that's all Paul had come there to do, then he would have been in trouble. He would have been in trouble if he just came there to preach Jesus. They would have probably found him guilty. But he had a defense, and he had a strong defense. And Paul did huge damage to their claims, and all by just pointing out the true things that could be confirmed and substantiated. Anyway, Paul does talk about one of the reasons they are there accusing him in Acts 24. Look at verse 21. And this is for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them, because remember I was at that trial, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. And, and, that were, and at that word, remember, Paul put that out there during the first trial with Lysias the commander because he realized that one part of his accusers were Pharisees and the other part Sadducees. And this ended up turning the tide on the trial because it wasn't going well for Paul. He opened his opening statement. The high priest said, strike him on the mouth. Paul knew he was in trouble. He said, hey, I know, I, I realize now that there's some Pharisees, some Sadducees, and he says this statement, and then all of a sudden they start arguing because they had, they had, he had brought to them a bigger enemy than himself. And then, so, and then at that, Acts 23, 9, remember what happened. At that, the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. 
But if a spirit or angel of God has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So there, right there, this group found Paul innocent in the first trial. They didn't find anything against Paul that was worthy of death or punishment or anything. And of course, these scribes of the Pharisees' party, or the Pharisees themselves, of course, probably aren't at this trial. And they're, and they're not at this new trial because, again, they found him innocent. And Paul's words here are, they, what they really do is they, they put the final nail in the dead coffin of, the, of these, this high priest and this flatterer here. Um, they're done for. Paul's pure, truthful argument and evidence against their lies is just too bulletproof to be prevailed against, leaving Felix no real choice to find Paul innocent. Look what he says. Read verse 32, getting on our last couple of verses of today. But when Felix heard these things, what Paul said and all the things he said and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all this stuff, having more accurate way of the knowledge of the way, which means he kind of knew of Christianity pretty well, he adjourned the proceedings and said, well, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. In a good conscience, he could not accuse Paul of the wrongdoing that the Jews or the flatterer had made against Paul. And he could not sentence him to death, for he knew he was innocent. He knew the way of Christianity. He even knew, we're going to learn this in the next week or two, he even knew about Judaism as his wife was Jewish. And so kind of he had a leg up, kind of he knew the things of the Jews already, and he knew the things that Paul said, and he knew the way, he knew about Christianity, and he knew that why would this guy do anything? He's just worshiping God. This guy didn't do anything wrong. And these guys, they don't got, he how can I prove anything to what they said? Paul, he's innocent. Last verse of today, look what Paul gets for his faithfulness, just to continue to follow Christ, even though it was through the valley of the shadow of death. Look at verse 23. Last verse of today. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Yet again, even though he finds Paul innocent in verse 22, it's important to note, instead of just releasing him to go free, which he could have done, Remember, he couldn't because it wasn't the will of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, you're going to Rome and you're going to witness to me of Rome. It's like he did in Jerusalem. So, of course, he has no choice in the matter. Felix, of course, even though Paul brought it upon a good evidence, he, he could not just release him. He had to still keep him in custody. But look at the awesome things that Felix gives to Paul throughout his stay there in Caesarea. Felix orders Paul, this is why Jesus Christ did this for Paul. Felix orders Paul to be kept under guard. And that's bad, you say, but not really, because remember, the Jews were still trying to kill him. Remember, this is still within the time. These 40-plus Jewish nuts who had made the vow to kill him just a little while ago, they could still be alive. They, they might not be dead yet. And you know, Paul was only one guy. So had Paul, he said, oh, no, keep Paul in custody, but just put him in a common jail. Well, they, they could have gotten to him. Here, he says, no, no, keep him, but put him with a guard. That would protect him, which is a good thing. Then Paul was allowed to come and go as he wanted to. And that would have been with the guard with him. Because, you know, Felix said, keep him safe. That means, in a sense, he would almost be like a president in our country, in America, or, or some kind of senator or congressman or whatever. Because they get, well, at least the president, I know for sure, gets secret service that go with him everywhere he goes to keep him safe. Now, Paul kind of got yeah, presidential treatment by Jesus Christ because he continued to follow Jesus Christ. This would have also included people visiting him if Paul wanted to go out and, and preach in the streets because he, he said he can come and go, right? And that, that would have just meant in Caesarea, of course. Paul wasn't allowed to leave the city and go back home or, you know, sail across the sea and go wherever he wanted to go. Remember, Jesus Christ had a plan for his life, and Paul, and Paul himself, you know, didn't want to go against that. So, and, and then here, one more huge thing. Did you know, maybe you didn't see this part. I actually didn't see it till like just last night or just... Like yesterday afternoon or whenever, I, the last time I worked on the sermon other than this morning, Paul was to be put in custody in Rome. Well, do prisoners have to work and pay for their food and their lodging? And No. Paul basically got a free ride. Paul basically got a free ticket 
free food, free security, a free house to live in. Yeah, that was what Paul got. So, I mean, even though he was a prisoner, he really got the presidential treatment from Jesus Christ because he continued to, to fight the good fight of faith, because he continued to submit his life to the will of God, because he continued to say, hey, yeah, I'm just going to preach you even though I know, I know, I know your plan and, I, and I'm okay with it. Now, the only other prisoner in all of biblical history that I remember that got this kind of presidential treatment was Joseph when he, when he was sold up the river by his brothers and then he ended up in, in a prison that was for, you know, the king's prisoners and stuff. Uh, and that was, you know, basically he, he went in and even though he was a prisoner, the, the, prison, the prison leader, the prison warden basically gave him free run of the prison. He basically could do what he wanted to do in the prison. He wasn't bound in just one cell. And so here, we know Joseph was in God's will. We know Paul was in God's will. And so we know, wow, God gives presidential treatment to those that continue to walk with him and submit to him in all the ways in which he says, hey, this is the way I want you to live, and they do it. What can we today as God's born-again children learn from this trial where the Jews purposely bring a flatterer to speak smooth and soft words to deceive Felix and to give in Paul the death sentence even though he was innocent. What, what can we learn today? As I, I've kept saying, the title says, I think we need to be careful and we need to beware the flatterer. And this is real advice, real advice that we must be careful to take seriously. There's two aspects, though, of, of beware the flatterer. We need to be careful that we ourselves don't ever become flatterers. I mean, that, that's, that's the first thing I see. Uh, you know, bad things are going to happen to us. Different situations are going to happen to us. God's going to allow certain bad situations to come. He's going to allow, you know, certain bad situations to come. And, and we may be innocent. Or we may have done something wrong. You know, we know in the Bible that there's Christians that have done things that have been wrong. And they've punished because they have, been, have done things wrong. The Bible speaks about them. But then we know there's Christians that bad things kind of happen to them. And they're of the will of God for some purpose God has for them. And what we need to make sure we don't do is whenever any of these bad situations come up, whenever any of these, you know, we're accused of something, um, there was a lady uh, by the name of Hannah, Hannah Overton, who was accused of doing something and, and killing her adopted child, and she didn't do anything wrong. It was the kid, and he had a certain allergic reaction to something, and she didn't know, and so she was just feeding him, and then the boy got into a box of something that was high in salt or something like that, and then he ended up dying, and then, of course, they claimed that Hannah Overton was the one that did the evil and purposely killed the boy and so on and so forth, and, and of course, we know that she was innocent. She was a wonderful Christian woman, and she was even found innocent later on, but nevertheless, God had a reason. She actually went to prison for something she didn't do wrong. But what she did not do, she didn't flatter to try to get out of the situation that God had put her in. She spoke the truth and let God be God, and she committed herself to all the things that God had for her. And she didn't complain, and she didn't flatter. So we need to be careful that, just like Joseph, when he went to prison, he was an innocent man. But yet, when he was innocent, he didn't try to flatter his way out of it, because really, flattery... It's deception. It's lies. You don't really mean those things that you're saying. You're just saying those things so that you can get out of the consequences or maybe get out of a spot that, you know, God put you there for on purpose. And so we need to be careful that we don't flatter people just to get our way because that's not the godly thing to do. God wants us as, as his children to tell the truth. He wants us to be loving and, and spreading the ways of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us deceiving people and flattering people. So that's dangerous that we don't fall into that ourselves as God's true children. But, but number two, on the other side of the coin, we need to be careful that we don't you know, succumb to the flatterers that come along our paths, those that are those flatterers, those that become those flatterers, the ones that Peter warned us about in 2 Peter 2, 18 through 22, because Peter warns us of them. And there's a, a severe warning that Peter gives us because we as God's children, Jesus said Matthew in, in the Gospel of Matthew 24, 13, I believe, it's only those that endure to the end that should be saved. 
Uh, that's a stipulation on our salvation, is what that is. You have to endure in order to be saved. Eve, the words are all like that in the sentence and so on and so forth. And so we need to be careful that we don't succumb to them because the flatters who walk according to the flesh, their fleshly ways, can be dangerous because as Peter starts out with in verse 18 of 2 Peter 2, he says this, They allure through the lusts of the flesh, those through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And it says, verse 18, I'm sorry, I missed the start of the verse, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. Well, that's exactly what this orator, Tertullus, did with Felix. He spoke great swelling words of emptiness. He said a lot of things, a lot of bad things against Paul, but what he really said was nothing. He really gave great swelling words of emptiness, and he was a flatterer. And these flatterers that Peter's warning us about in 2 Peter 2, 18-22, he said, they starts off, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Those who escaped are speaking about those who have come to the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we see here that these flatterers can flatter us back into a life that dishonors God, a life where we forfeit our eternal life with God because we fall back into the ways of the flesh, lewdness, uh, sexual, you know, sexual perversion, you name it, just different ways. 19, verse 19, while they promise them liberty, hey, if you do these things, oh, you're free. Live any way you want, Christians. It's okay. You've been saved. You're okay. Live any way you want. They themselves are slaves of corruption by whom a person is overcome. By him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcoming them, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than of knowing it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to wallow in the mire. Those that have escaped the, 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 the pollutions of this world, who have come to Christ, who have been born again, we need to be careful that we don't fall back into the sensual, illicit, horrible ways of the flesh that are so easy Oh, they're so easy to fall into because the flesh is just so wonderful to please. And we can begin, and, we, and by the words of the flatterer, by his great swelling words of emptiness, we can again fall back to this way and fall back to this lewdness and fall back to these ways that dishonor God. And as Peter says here, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. What does that mean? It means that you're not going to heaven. It means that Jesus said, those who desire to follow after me must deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow after me. If you stop denying yourself, which is you stop taking yourself off the throne and letting God be on the throne of your life, controlling your life, and you start, and you start accepting yourself, meaning you start to rule your life again, and you stop picking up your cross, and you stop following Jesus Christ, which is what Peter's talking about here, through the great swelling words of emptiness that the flatterer flattered the Christian, the one who got saved back into the world of illicitness and evil and, 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 and morality and so on and so forth, then the latter end for them is worse than it is for the beginning. And he says this, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn from the Holy Commandment. So there we see that the end is not good. We need to, as Christians, beware the flatterer. We need to endure to the end. We need to make sure that we continue to daily deny ourselves, daily pick up our crosses, and daily follow after Jesus Christ. And this is so important that we continue and that we don't stop until we see Christ's face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Beware the flatterer. And how many have been deceived so far by the flatterer. Please, Christians, be careful. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much, Lord God, for the words that you've given us in this message, Lord. We thank you so much for your warnings that you give, and we thank you so much, Lord God, for examples of of great men like Paul in the scriptures, Lord God, who defend themselves with truth and justice and evidence and, and substantial evidence, Lord God, and proof, Lord. We know that we can stand on the truth with you, Lord God. We know that you love the truth. We know that you are the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. We know that that's one of the things that's in you is the truth, Lord. We know that all lies from the devil. Lord, I pray that those that are out there that, that are yours, Lord God, that they wouldn't become flatterers ever, that we would never flatter just to get our way because, Lord, flattery is deception. Flattery is not of you. Uh, flattery to be, to, to flatter somebody with nice words just because you want to give them nice words, that's an awesome thing to do, Lord. Because you really mean it, well, God, that's an awesome thing to do. But just to flatter somebody just because I want to get my way or I want to get something nice, Lord God, that, that's not of you. And Lord, I do also pray, Lord God, for those that are, are yours, maybe even those that have been flattered already and have fallen back into their fleshly ways. Lord God, I just pray for those of us that have stayed the course, Lord, that we would be aware that they're out there. Be aware that they're out there. Lord, that all that saying struck my heart. Oh, you've been saved. It's okay. Oh, it doesn't matter how you live now, Lord God. We, Lord, you know. That is a dangerous teaching right now in our in our church today, Lord. Well, we've been saved, so it doesn't matter. Right? Live live how you want, and it's a form of Calvinism. It's a it's a form of one saved always saved, Lord God. And it's a it's a form of false religion. It's a form of false salvation, Lord, because we can't then be saved and then fall back and walk into the flesh because Peter warned us against it, and our our end would be worse than our beginning. So, Lord, it would have been better for us not to know the truth, the right, righteousness of the way, than to have known it and then turned away. God, that's a lie from the devil, God. Help us that have stayed the course, stay pure in you, and stay righteous in you, and stay holy in you, and keep, continue to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses and follow after you. And, and, Lord God, maybe for those out there that have been flattered already by these flattery words of, oh, you've been saved, so whatever, it doesn't matter, oh, and, and then they are. Lord, I pray that they would repent. Before it's too late for them. For Lord God, if they've walked away from the road that Christ had them walking on and walked away from the ways and the teachings of Christ, they, they cannot expect to be saved if they live willful, sinful lifestyles, Lord, only to please themselves and their flesh. Please, God, bring them back to you before it's too late. Thank you so much, Lord God. I love you and I praise you. And I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.